Uh, got a lot to get to this morning. My name is Pastor Ryan, by the way. Uh, welcome to Sunrise. We got a wondrous passage to look at this morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. We started last week to look at the mission of the church, uh, of Sunrise Community Church, if nothing else, because we talked about how it's hard to know what to say to people. We want to talk about the church. God's doing some great things, we're great, which I'm grateful for. And people said, you know, I don't really know what to say about the church. But we also want to talk about the mission of the church because we want to do something big together. And so we're going to talk about our mission, which, by the way, is hidden on your bulletin. It's hidden somewhere in your bulletin. If you can find it, you get a prize. Self-respect. So you get. All right. It is our mission is to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by his grace. Last week, we looked at this amazing inaugural address that Jesus gives to sort of introduce himself really to the world, or at least to the place where he grew up. All right, and, and the second part of this passage in Luke 4 is how people responded to Jesus' introduction. And, we'll, and as we look at this this morning, we'll notice a couple things about grace. You know, as we end May and get into June, we'll talk a little bit more about how Jesus and his grace affects all that we do as a church. All right, it affects our outreach it affects community, it affects worship, it affects service to one another. But first, we're going to get to the second part of our mission. Help them grow by grace, by His grace. And so, uh, just so you know where we're going this morning, we're going to discuss four things. We're going to discuss grace, what's so amazing about it. Number two, how does it help a person grow? How does grace help a person grow? Number three, how does something like grace, something as good as grace, become a bitter pill? For some people to swallow. And finally, number four, how can, how can uh, grace make a church grow? How can grace make a collective people grow? So those four things, it's, it's the quadrilateral sermon this morning, okay? We're going to go all four corners, 90 degree angles, let's do this. All right, read with me starting at verse 16 of chapter 4, Luke 4. All right. And he came, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that's what we focused on last week. All right, now look how people initially respond to Jesus. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So the initial response people have to what Jesus has said, how he's introduced himself, is marveling. Or as the former captain of a slave trading ship, John Newton, would have read it in his translation, amazed at the grace coming from his mouth. And of course, we sang a minute ago part of a song that he wrote back in 1779. So let's look specifically at these words at which people were so amazed. They were so amazed at these specific words. Sorry, let's look at verse 18. 
Or Jesus is basically reading from Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? To proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. We find a good summary of this idea that Jesus fulfills in Isaiah 61 here. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, I'm going to tie this all together here. We're going to focus on verse 6. Let's look what this says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 6, powerless. That's the image Jesus gives here in Luke 4 of the condition of those for whom he came to rescue. Helpless. Couldn't do anything on their own. Paul adds here in Romans 5 that he came to rescue such helpless people ultimately by dying in their place while they were still his enemies. Unable to do anything about our final destination We were still rebelling against the only guy in the room who could help us. What's so amazing about grace? The first two things we see in this passage, and as Paul kind of summarizes here in Romans 5, he came to help. He showed his active love while we were powerless and we were still his enemies. Amazing. Before going any further, though, I want to, this is the perfect time to define grace. I'm going to take a quick aside here to define grace. To fulfill my yearly quota, if if you've listened to me before, you know I like to define grace. I do it like three or four times a year. Uh, I like to talk about it. Over the years, uh, you know, there are a lot of different definitions for grace. I've sort of crafted this definition, I feel like, gets to its core. And that is grace is God's love made active through an undeserved gift. The ultimate gift that God gives is salvation, rescue through Jesus Christ. But it starts with God's passionate love for us. That's where grace begins. And then it moves to him wanting to demonstrate that love, wanting to show it and actively demonstrate it to us. So the way he does that is riddled in our lives. It starts with he created us, right? Do we do anything to deserve to be created? Do you remember anything you did in heaven to say like, oh, you did it, level five, I'm going to create you now. No, you deserve that. He sent his son to live on this earth, ultimately die for us. All the way to the air we breathe is is active love. It's grace towards us. To the bacon and eggs you had before coming to church. Did anyone have bacon, by the way, this morning? I was hoping somebody had bacon. I mean, that is one of the ultimate graces of God. You know, by the way, they're making bacon cologne? That bacon smelling cologne, Yes. for the the man who really loves bacon in your life. All right. But all these things are are examples of God's grace. He loves us, but with more than words, with action. And that is why we hear, right, the apostles say, here in Romans 5, God, what? Demonstrated his love for us through sending Christ. Right? So God's love is not theoretical. It's not philosophical. It doesn't come through greeting cards and well wishes. It comes through real life action and intervention. It's amazing, this grace, because he shows it while we were powerless, while we were his enemies. But one more thing. Read with me in verse 19. One more amazing thing about grace. Jesus also says, 
he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is a specific reference to a big-time event, a grand event in the Jewish life called the year of Jubilee. All right, so as Leviticus 25 explains, once every 50 years, if you're a Jewish person, you're living on your land, all right, all debts, once every 50 years, all debts were forgiven. No matter how bad they were, no matter how deep you were in it, all debts were forgiven, and land and property and the land of your family would have been restored to you once every 50 years. In other words, once in every person's lifetime. So when it's quoted here, they look to this one moment in their lives where this sweeping grace would be shown. Where not only would they be forgiven debts, but they would be credited back with the land they once owned. And they looked to this one moment. So when Jesus here quotes Isaiah 61, he's saying he's here to fulfill it. There's an urgency. This is the time, friends. This is your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the Lord's favor. God's grace is so amazing also because it's timely. It's not something, grace is not something you can conjure up or make up on your own. God has to actually work. And God offers it at just the right time. He knows when you're ready. This is a cool thing about it. He knows when you're ready to reach out for help. When you're ready to say, Lord, I need you. He knows when you're ready to listen, and that's when he brings it. And friends, if you're listening this morning, that might be you. This might be that time for you. Maybe you're ready to hear that Christ wants to rescue you freely. But it's not only for people who've never asked Christ to rescue them. It's also for those of us who've asked him to rescue us and continue to ask him to rescue us in our lives from various circumstances and things, from sin, for Christians as well. I, I finally finished a, um, an audio book yesterday. One of the very small negative things about living in K-Man is there's no commute. So if you listen to an audio book, it's like you got 10 minutes at a time. And this, I realize, this is nitpicky because no one wants a commute. But I realize one negative is it's taking me a year to finish an audio book, all right? <laughs> now, uh, so anyway... I finished the book, The Hiding Place. Anyone ever heard of this book by Corey Tin Boom? All right, a few of you. Don't, don't be ashamed. It's great. We like readers, so don't be ashamed. All right, I'm glad some of you have heard of it because uh, when I told my wife, uh, Katie, that I never read it, she was so appalled, she, she questioned my salvation. She's like, you've never read this? I will pray for you. Basically, it's an autobiography of a woman uh, from Holland, from, from Nazi-occupied Holland back in the 1940s, uh, who hides Jews during World War II. And eventually the Gestapo find her and send her to a concentration camp. All right? but, but earlier in her life, God begins to prepare her for this. Early in her life, she loses an opportunity. She loses a chance at what she perceives, and correctly, by the way, perceives, is her one chance at romantic love. And she's at this point, she's a young woman, she doesn't know how she's going to get past this. How will she endure this heartbreak in her life? And she talks to her dad about it. Her father tells her a sort of parable. When she was little, her father would take her with her on business trips on the train into Amsterdam. He said at this moment, when she wondered, can I, how am I ever going to endure? He said, Corey, when you were young, when did I give you your train ticket? And she simply said, uh, right before I got on. And he just says, 
So it is with God's grace. He doesn't give it to you ahead of time or in large supply to store up, but he gives you exactly the strength you need when you need it. It's timely. And well, this little parable proves to be of an estimable aid to her as she faces monumental obstacles, particularly in concentration camps, wondering at each step, how am I going to overcome this? And God gives her strength. One example that stood out to me was she gets transported from prison in Holland at one point to the infamous Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. She gets to the barracks and she finds a small cot, a tiny cot that she will share with two other women, three women in this small cot. And all, every single cot is infested with fleas. And she looks at it, shrugs her shoulders and just wondered, oh, Lord, how will I get through this? And once again, God gives her strength in a unique way. In this particular case, it's pretty cool. Her, her sister Betsy is along with her. And she insists that they give thanks together to God for the fleas. She says, Betsy, or she says, Corey, this too, these fleas too are God's grace to us. And Corey Kimboom essentially turns to her and says, I am not giving thanks for the fleas. All right, that's it. <laughs> I am not convinced this is God's grace. But every night in those barracks, in these flea-infested barracks, they hold services. They read the Bible and they get to share the gospel and bring hope to people who desperately need it. And no one bothers them, not one guard. Later, Corey would overhear three guards talk about why they never went to the barracks. They said, oh, that place is littered with fleas. And she thought back to her sister's words. Corey, the fleas too are God's grace. And they were that opened the gospel to so many women. See, God's grace strengthens us at just the right time. And then it begins to add upon itself. It's what Paul calls grace upon grace. That's what's so amazing about it. How can this amazing grace make a person grow or help a person grow? Well, the problem we often hear when it comes to this idea of grace is that we are saved by grace. And when you pray this prayer and you trust Christ, you're saved by grace. But then we grow by, you know, we leave growing to a little bit of sweat. Maybe we go Sunday mornings to hear a preacher to yell at us, to spur us on, right, to get us moving in life. That does not work. It does not work. You will ultimately feel frustrated, tired, worn out. The solution, friends, is to drag yourself to the cross, Every day, drag yourself to the cross to be reminded of God's grace, to receive it again and again. Now, Katie's good about this. When I tell Kate, when I talk, talk to Katie about this, to drag ourselves to the cross, she's like, what do you mean? See, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of these guys who thinks clearly about things. Uh, oftentimes, I, I, I get the biblical part right, but I don't think about how to practically apply it to people's lives. And Katie's just saying, okay, how do I do that? You say this, Ryan, sounds good. How do I do that? She's right. I need to think about that. And I just want to tell you three things. I, for lack of a better word, kind of a three-step process. I don't want to call it a process, but we will. Three things for dragging yourself to the cross every day. How do you do that? Number one, be honest. Take time. Be quiet with the Lord. And be honest and specific about your sin before holy God. If you want to grow by grace, be honest and specific about sin. As one person once said, uh, until... 
sin becomes bitter, Christ cannot become sweet to your life. Be honest. Write down your sins if you have to. I remember this uh, famous 19th century playwright, George Bernard Shaw, used to say, the single biggest problem with communication, with communicating with someone, is the illusion that it has taken place. And I think it's the same thing with confession. One of the single biggest problems with confessing your sin is, the, is believing the illusion that it's taken place. Right? Like you just say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. And you, and you kind of move on. Right? It's hard to engender sorrow for sin before a holy God, for rebellion against a holy God. When you say things very generally like, Lord, I'm sorry, I should have been nicer to my spouse. I should have been more selfless with my kids. And, you know, I really should give more to the poor. All right? That is not specific confession. That is sort of just like throwing out general ideas of what would be nice to do on the Hallmark Channel. You know what I'm saying? Be specific. Be specific. But you know, sometimes listing isn't enough. Uh, You know, the longer I walk with Christ, the more I realize it's not necessarily lists of sin, but it's just this misplaced trust. It's not so much doing bad things, but it's failing to depend on Jesus during the regular or even good moments during my day. You know, when the daily grind comes along, you're working, you're working, you're working. But you're not depending on Jesus. You're depending on yourself and your own strength. And you, you don't ask Jesus for help and ask for His grace to get you through it or to help you with it or to love people through it. You ever notice that? And you just, you just don't depend on God. And after a while, your lunch hour comes around, you're interacting with people. And they rarely see Christ in you, right? Because there hasn't been that dependence on Jesus. That's how I feel I often rebel and sin against God, lack of dependence on Him. But here's the great thing, friends, about this. We have the opportunity to be radically honest. Radically honest. Because we know that the healing and the closeness with Christ to come is far greater than avoiding admitting the gory details of our lives. In other words, it's hard to admit shame. I get that. But it's far greater to experience the intimacy and the closeness with Christ that comes from admitting sin and then receiving God's forgiveness. Be honest and specific about sin. Number two, meditate on the crucified Christ. I can't emphasize this enough. This may happen. I'll give you some practical ideas. This may happen through reading Scripture. You may just read the accounts of the crucifixion where Christ says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When Christ turned his back, or sorry, God the Father turned his back on Christ because Christ was taking on the Father's just punishment for sin, separated from God for us. Be creative in the way you think about it too, though. Use your imagination. For instance, I often have a hard time imagining the reality that the crucifixion was so long ago was it historically true? Was it real? Sometimes I imagine it's the 21st century Cayman. Cayman here. You know, and, and I've imagined him being crucified outside the window I'm looking. Because if Christ didn't come to first century Jerusalem, he would have come eventually. We needed him to come. And so I imagine him out there being crucified. Consider the most hellish situation you've ever experienced. The most hellish. That's what Christ experienced. Ever ex- situation you've ever experienced, consider... Heard described, you know, I just described concentration camps. Maybe it's that. And recall that Christ endured that and more on the cross. Perhaps it's a song you sing. When I survey the wondrous cross, or how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, 
that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Maybe it's a, a piece of art you, you look at, like El Greco's uh, Christ carrying the cross. Or take a nail sometime. You ever do this? Take a nail. You can find nails almost anywhere. Okay, man, I feel like. Take a nail. Close your eyes. And just lightly press the tip of your finger against the tip of the nail. And then envision it piercing flesh. Now I know, when we think about these specifics, meditating on the cross, we do not want to go there, do we? No one wants to go there. It's not our inclination because there is suffering. There, where the cross is, there's hurt. It's pain. But friends, we can't love our enemies. We can't pray for those who persecute us. We can't have compassion on those without compassion unless we go there and recall the suffering love that achieved forever forgiveness for us. You've got to go there. You've got to. Even when you don't want to, you've got to. And the third sort of step, if you will, is receiving forgiveness and giving thanks. Receiving forgiveness and giving thanks. Then keep giving thanks throughout the day because when you receive His forgiveness, you're reminded of His fatherhood. You're reminded of His limitless patience with, him, with you. And the most natural response is gratitude. You realize that everything which comes your way during the rest of your day is a gift. Everything. A gift that comes from the cross. Then your obedience is not necessarily, not necessarily a necessity, but it's a privilege. You just want to please the one who loves you. Words we use like shoulda, oughta, must in the Christian life get replaced by get to. And I want to. The more you come before the cross and receive forgiveness. These things, being honest, meditating on the cross, receiving forgiveness, they don't necessarily create faith. But faith gets activated. Or as like the Puritans, the old people, you know what I'm talking about, 17th century, 18th century, used to call it, your faith is quickened. I call this the everyday primer to a life of gratitude. For me personally, it works. You know, you prime the pump. You go before the cross. You spend that quiet moment there. Receive forgiveness. And that primes you. Be thanking God throughout the day to live a life of gratitude. And that's how you grow. Because grace is all around us. We just need our faith to be quickened. To see it and acknowledge it. But amazement is not the end of the story we're reading this morning here in Luke 4. Because Jesus' audience, they're amazed. But two minutes later, two minutes later they try and kill Jesus. Let's read in verse 23. Read with me if you would. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. You've heard this, right? Physician, heal thyself. And they would do this, right? If you remember on the cross, it was the most prominent religious leaders, many of whom certainly came from Nazareth, who said what about Jesus? He said, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Physician, heal thyself. Continue on here. What you've heard 
Well, we've heard you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. All right, so they're not just sort of frustrated. Oh, I don't like this preacher. They're filled with wrath. They want to throw him off a cliff. And then verse 30, but passing, I love this verse, passing through their midst, he went away. We don't know, we're not told exactly how this happens. He just, whoosh. I kind of think of it like, um, you remember those old cartoons with Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd? And Elmer would catch bugs and they'd get in this tussle. Right? And they would like move around like atoms. Remember? And the smoke would come up. And shh, And then all of a sudden you'd see bugs over here and he'd walk away. Right? Like this. And then Elmer, he would, like, the smoke would clear and Elmer Fudd would be there like on a pretzel. Remember that? Like this is what Jesus does here. He's like, alright, see ya. But why? Why is it that people react this way? What happened? How is it that something like grace that people were first so amazed at how can that become a bitter pill for people to swallow? All right, this is point three here. To understand this, we have to break down verses 25 through 27. All right, where Jesus gets these two provocative Old Testament accounts of God saving people. God's salvation. The first is from 1 Kings 17. There's been no water in Israel for some time. There's very little food for three and a half years. Among God's people. And God decides to do a miracle. Do, let's do a little miracle. A miracle of provision. He doesn't send rain, but he does basically provide an unending food supply for a widow and her son who are from Zarephath. Zarephath. That is not God's people. All right, this is a remote region outside of Israel where God goes. In other words, God decides to do this miracle but outside the circle of trust. Right, here we are, circle of trust, God's people. He goes out here. The second story he tells is from 2 Kings 5. Very similar story. Apparently there's this really pandemic in Israel where people have this disease, this skin disease. And God decides to do a miracle. He brings healing to a foreign king. Once again, circle of trust. And not just a regular person, this time a king of a foreign land. In other words, what Jesus was saying was this. God's plan, the Father's plan of grace will include those outside the camp and bring them in. It will include those outside the circle of trust. And when the people hear this, oh, it's on. Wrath. Oh, you did not just say that. This is a kind, that kind of moment. You've got to remember, these people, they faithfully endured as God's people. They have been going to their version of church for a while, faithfully. You see, something happens. Something often happens when you're in a church long enough. 
or when you've walked with God long enough. At first, it's great when you start walking with God. You're being included into his family, knowing him as a father and part of this body. And it's awesome. You're being included into something. But over time, that grace, that gift starts to taste a little less sweet. It even sometimes gets bitter. People talk about it so much. How does that happen? Because of slightly misplaced trust. How does that happen? Misplaced trust. You start to trust in yourself and your own ability to follow God. I can do it. I've done this for a while. I'm going to get up. I know how to love my neighbor. I know how to share the gospel. I know how to do this. I know how to do this thing, God. I'm good. But it's slightly. That's why I say that specifically, because we still give God the credit for the big stuff. What happens is slowly it becomes my church. That's my church when you describe it. You start to learn the finer points of being a Christian, which others don't know yet. And so that makes you more mature, a little bit better. And then you have certain rights that others don't really have. God, I've walked with you for a while. Come on. One of the results of this, friends, is that we start to create a separate tier, a separate tier, it's really down here, for Christians who don't follow the rules as well as you do. Right? You're here, I got this other tier, Definitely Christians don't quite follow the rules as well. Oftentimes, I think it's new people. And it's one of the reasons we get really, really, really excited sometimes when you walk with the Lord for a while and you're really excited about rules. It's because you want to distinguish yourself from the other Christians. And we don't want to say it that way. No one says it that way. But you just wanted to say, God, I know you love me because I'm doing these things. By the way, these rules, they're often rules that aren't even in the Bible. They're these man-made rules for which we'll often misquote the Bible. For instance, going to certain Christian events. Uh, don't wear, do wear certain things. Right? Uh, haven't you read this? Right? Uh, you remember? Uh, insert popular book here. Remember at one point it was the prayer of Jabez. Then it was like purpose-driven life. Then it was like the shack. Right? Haven't you read this? By the way, if that's the holy trifecta of Christian reading, we're in trouble. I'm going to say that right now. All right? Some of you are like, what? Send me your emails of complaint later. Ryan at sunrise.com. Send it there. All right? <laughs> Some of you get that. All right. So, or the super spiritual rules. Like raising or not raising hands in worship, depending on your tradition. Right? One of the two could be extra holy. Or praying with other Christians and knowing when to say... Mmm, yes, Lord. Right, that, that rule, right? That's a big one. That's a big one that makes you on the next tier. How do you know that you're creating a separate tier in your mind, in your heart of other Christians who don't follow the rule as well? Is there anyone in your life who you'd rather God not extend grace and mercy to? Is there anyone in your life, you'd, you'd kind of rather than God not extend grace and mercy to them? Anyone? I'll take your wry smiles as, yes, <laughs> there is. I too am a sinner in that way. I think the biggest challenge, friends, with all of this is letting go of that last shred of self-righteousness. Again, 
God, God, we'll give God glory for the big things. God, you get glory for the big things in my life. All right, that time when my friend asked me about my faith, and I didn't know what to say, but you gave me the words to say, and he, he came to church with me. Now I was walking with the Lord. God, awesome, that was totally you. Uh, helping me heal from a difficult childhood. Lord, that's totally you. Helping our church grow. Father, absolutely you. But I decided to give my wife the morning out and watch the kids, all right? Or I decided not to watch that movie with the nudity in it. That was me. I gave from my pantry to help the poor and the hungry. You know, and, you know, I came up with that good idea to help the company. Stop acknowledging that each of these things are a gift. And the saddest part of this, saddest part, is it robs you of the joy. The joy of reveling in God's grace. That not only you can participate in, but you can bring others along to revel in God's active love in your life. No one's going to come by and pat you on the back and celebrate you if you decided not to dish your coworker when they made a fool out of themselves. And you say, look, well, at least I didn't make fun of you know, Russ when he said that stupid thing. No one's going to say, oh, good job. Right? But... When you share that God gave me the strength to hold my tongue, when I'm used to being really negative about my coworkers, that is reason to rejoice. Because of you? No, because of God. You see that? Don't miss out on that opportunity. Not only to revel in God's grace, but have others join you with it. Point four. How can God make a church grow? How can God make a people grow? This is a lot of what we'll discuss in the coming weeks as we look at the vision of sunrise. But let me give you first some realistic snapshots and how grace can help a people grow together. All right, first of all, we listen to people who are new to the church and new to faith in Christ. We listen to them. Very simple. Uh, Being insistent not to focus intentional community around age, around common interests, around common nationalities. This is big for me, but... So much as we center community around Christ, who by grace puts everyone on equal footing. All right? And you'll hear me be insistent about this. I know that's difficult. I know that our tendency is, let me get with my South African friends. All right, we do this. I do with my, you know, we wind those commonalities. But by grace, because we're all equal in Christ, because He has saved each of us, we can all. Fellowship with different kinds of people and what a testimony that could be to the world. Talk about that more next week. All right. Teach and preach redemptively that all of Scripture points out our need for the gospel of grace or presents the gospel of grace or shows how we can participate in the gospel of grace. All of Scripture does this, even the Old Testament. The way we counsel people, biblical counseling, we encourage obedience to God and to His Word as a response to His grace. We don't start with following things, we don't start with doing stuff. What do you think about God's grace? You have to start there. How we reach out and serve our community. God loves you, no strings attached. Remember that? Servant evangelism. Mercy ministry. How we present the good news to others. Many are familiar with a faith of guilt or shame or slavish obedience, but they haven't heard the real good news that Jesus brings. In conflict. This is possibly, conflict is possibly the best chance that we have to apply and demonstrate grace. It's the hardest, but it's probably the best opportunity. In fact, in some ways, we're not really a church 
Your community group's not really a community group until you had a good family fight. Right? Because it means people are finally being honest with each other. That's kind of how I really feel. You know, but I probably need forgiveness for that. Or I really feel like I need to show forgiveness for that. Man, what an opportunity. The world does not see this. But as a church, to do this, what a testimony. What about serving one another? Grace and how we serve one another. Serving one another is an opportunity to respond to His grace. And with the grace given you. He's given each of you a grace or a gift to serve each other. Um, on Discovery Day this past week, this past Monday, we did something to honor all the volunteers in our church. All right, And we chartered the love boat, as I like to call it. Uh, we went to Starfish Point. We had a catered lunch. We played games. We gave away gift certificates. Now, we just really want to honor these volunteers. We love volunteers. Our church is really run by volunteers. So I'm just grateful, yes. I know that was one of the games we played up there. Good time. While we were out there, as we were traveling out, I sort of wondered to myself, you know, if we didn't do much to appreciate volunteers, would most people stop volunteering? As I thought about specific persons, I just started thinking about different volunteers in our church. I closed my eyes and for the next couple minutes. I just thanked God. I just thanked Him. Because I knew that most of the persons I was thinking of, they got it or they get it. They served out of gratitude. They were serving out of gratitude because God in His grace so served them. In fact, one of the volunteers even remarked, Man, this thing today was awesome, but it's even cooler to serve those kids on Sunday morning, especially when I think about how Jesus has served me. And I heard that. I was like, yes, dude, preach on Sunday. This is what I'm talking about. He declined. <laughs> he declined to preach. But perfect. It's kind of the sermon in a nutshell. And that, friends, is, by the way, something practical that we can say about our church. We want to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by His grace. When we talk to people about church, that's what we can say. Help them grow by His grace. And just say, you know, you know how some churches often say, or maybe all you hear about Christianity is getting people to serve God out of guilt or shame or obligation or family tradition or because you get more credit for doing more things. But in all we do as a church, we want to share that Jesus means for us to follow Him out of the simple motivation of His great love for us. Let's pray. And Lord, I pray that is something we can share about what you're doing in our church. When we say we want to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by His grace, a lot of people haven't really know, don't really know about grace. It's just this kind of Christianese word. But one of the things we can just say very simply is that a lot of the idea of Christianity, you know how it's you know, you're guilted, you're shamed, you're obligated into doing things, you do it to earn credit with God. But we are trying to share all that we do. Jesus, that you mean for us to be motivated by your great love for us, expressed supremely by the grace of the cross, by the grace of salvation. Lord, may that be our supreme motivation in what we do as a church and how we grow individually and how we grow together. Lord, drag us. If we don't drag ourselves, I pray for each person here. For those of us who are like, ah, I don't want to go to the cross every day. I pray that you would drag us there. 
If we don't do it on our own, Lord, bring us to the cross. And I know that you are faithful to do that. You'll always bring us back to the cross. Will we do it willingly or will we do it kicking and screaming? Lord, help us do it willingly. It's hard to go there. It's hard to admit sin. It's hard to remember the suffering you endured, Christ, on our behalf. But Lord, it is far more glorious, far more joyful to remember that you forgive us every time. And you draw us nearer to yourself. You even strengthen our relationship with you each time we, we thank you for being a God who grows us by grace. And you continue to be faithful to do that. We know you will. In Jesus' name, amen.